Hey there, family. I am so excited because November is here, and that means it's time for my OCD-related disorder series, and I am here for it. So get comfy, fam, because we're starting off with body-focused, repetitive behaviors with esteemed guest Ruth Gollum, and I can't wait for you to hear more. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent, and let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Okay, fam. So, if you are newer to our family gatherings, another big warm welcome to you. So glad you're here. And for our return fam, hey, hey, hey. So glad to be back together again. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, this week kicks off our five-part OCD-related disorder series, or OCRD, which I initially did last November, and I got so much positive feedback about the last time I went through this type of series. I just, I, I knew this was going to have to become our thing. So each part of this series, I'm dedicating some intentional time to give hope, love, some laughs, and some resources for our OCRD warriors and family. So we have some return topics this time around. We have some new terrain to cover, and we have a whole lot of hope, y'all. And based on popular demand, in no particular order, we'll be covering BFRBs today. Again, those are body-focused repetitive behaviors. And for the next few weeks, we'll be covering body dysmorphic disorder, pans, pandas, and Lyme's disease, misophonia, and a popular second look at obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, otherwise referred to as OCPD. And fam, I, I just have to say, this last year's OCRD series, along with inference-based CBT content for the treatment of OCD and common intersections, were amongst my highest downloaded episodes from the entire season catalog. In fact, OCPD with Dr. Anthony Pinto, which we're going to be meeting up with Anthony again this series, topped the charts for almost 10 consecutive months. And it's still amongst the top five downloaded episodes every single week. So there's obviously a lot of need for more resources and more support and more information when it comes to OCD-related disorders. So I'm so honored to provide a space where folks with lived experience, researchers, experts, and the fam here can unite to know that we are not alone. So I'll preface that with the needed support that comes along with these really engaging conversations, I don't want to miss a bit of this content. And there's so much content to cover. I feel like these different topics could be their own individual podcasts in and of themselves. So I'm going to cut straight to telling y'all a bit more about Ruth because family, she is such a treat. And I want to give the fam here a proper introduction. 
So Ruth is a senior clinician, a supervisor, and the co-director of the training program at the Behavior Therapy Center of Greater Washington, where she has worked since the mid-80s. She specializes in the treatment of anxiety disorders in children and adults, and she has conducted numerous workshops and seminars, participated as an expert in panel discussions, and has covered many topics including Tourette's syndrome, obsessive-compulsive disorder, trichotillomania, and providing cognitive behavioral therapy for anxious adults. In addition to publishing articles for professional journals and newsletters, Ruth is the author of multiple books, including The Hair-Pulling Habit and You, How to Solve the Trichotillomania Puzzle, a book describing comprehensive treatment for trichotillomania in children, and A Parent's Guide to Hair-Pulling Disorder, Effective Parenting Strategies for Children with Trichotillomania, which was formerly titled Stay Out of My Hair. So these books and her articles and really her dedicated work has designed a path for us to educate, guide, and support parents children, and loved ones in the management of BFRBs, OCD, and anxiety. She's a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the TLC Foundation for BFRBs, and she has a new treatment manual out for clinicians on this very topic called the Comprehensive Behavioral Treatment of Body-Focused Repetitive Behaviors, Elements in Psychology and Culture. So, I just have to say, I crossed paths with Ruth this past summer in San Francisco for the International OCD Conference where we were both speakers, and I was just so honored when she accepted my invitation to have a chat with us today, fam. So let's welcome Ruth to the fam, y'all, because we have lots to discuss, and I can't wait for you to hear more. Well, welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast, and I am so thrilled today because we are talking with Ruth Gollum, and she is here to talk with us about body-focused repetitive behaviors, and this is one of our OCD-related disorders that we see come up quite a bit. The statistic from the TLC Foundation is that one in 20 people have a BFRB. And so this is a pretty common issue that sometimes can get misunderstood as OCD, but it certainly can co-occur with OCD. And we are, we are just in luck having Ruth with us today because she's done so much dynamic work in the field, not just with BFRBs. And so welcome to the podcast, Ruth. We're so excited to have you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yes. So for starters, we have talked and I have, I've been intentional on even folding this in a bit more to the podcast because here at the OCD family community, we like to support our OCD warriors, but we also support our OCD related disorder sufferers and warriors. And so it's all in the family here. And as we get started in talking about this today, Ruth, could you give us just maybe a brief overview of what a BFRB is and how we can wrap our mind around understanding BFRBs. Yes. First of all, BFRB stands for Body Focused Repetitive Behavior. Mm-hmm. And it is exactly what it sounds like. It's a, it's a behavior that's focused on the body and someone continues to do that. What happens with a BFRB is it's a behavior that creates either some distress for somebody who's engaged in that behavior or they lose time, it interferes with their functioning, 
throughout the day. And it can cause some effects or damage to the body over time. Mm -hmm. That could be scarring or bald spots or scabs, things along those lines. People usually have tried to stop and find that it's difficult to stop. And also that it's not explained, the behavior is not explained by some other medical condition. Mm -hmm. So that, and that's important to understand because a lot of people who have a body focused repetitive behavior often may assume or maybe even have been told that it's a symptom of something else. And it isn't, it is something unto itself. So body focused repetitive behaviors include compulsive hair pulling, Mm -hmm. nail biting, skin picking, picking at cuticles, biting the inside of the cheek, biting the lips, things along those lines. Those are considered body-focused repetitive behaviors. Yeah. And so in terms of understanding body-focused repetitive behaviors, we might have situations or other diagnoses where one may engage in certain behaviors that is really a manifestation related to what's going on with that condition. So maybe in terms of substance use, for example, somebody may be using a substance and feel kind of itchy and might scratch. That isn't because of a BFRB. That's more of an effect we're seeing of the use or or what's happening in the brain with that substance exposure. Body dysmorphic disorder is another one where sometimes there will be picking But it's very specific to what's happening within body dysmorphic disorder. And it serves a function, which we like to highlight a lot here over at the podcast. It serves a function that serves that disorder over being its own thing. But I think when you say things like nail biting, for example... So many people are going to be listening and go, oh my gosh, I used to nail bite all the time or maybe still do or chew a pen cap or all the things. And so in terms of understanding this BFRB, really the the problem that comes up is you highlighted when it interferes with functioning. Because people can nail bite and that doesn't necessarily mean they have a BFRB or you can get really cracked lips in the winter and, and kind of pick at them a little not necessarily a BFRB. So as you were saying, Ruth, when it extends into, gosh, I feel like I can't even wear certain clothes because it's going to show these spots that I kind of just really went to town on. I maybe got an infection and need to take an antibiotic. I want to stop doing it, but I just keep doing it. And then I feel shame about that. Like those would be some examples where now we've really entered into the realm of it's affecting your functioning and how you're feeling. Exactly. I think that's a a very good point. And to your point of nail biting, I think that's a really good example as well, because I treated somebody, for example, who was biting his nails. He was an adult. He was an executive and he felt it was very unprofessional because during certain meetings, he would just start biting his nails and uh, felt like that was unprofessional and getting in the way of his work life. Yeah, There are times where people might bite their nails and they bite it down to the quick. Their nails are bleeding. They might get skin infections. They find it hard to type because their fingers are sore. Those become problematic and, again, interfere with functioning. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's such a great point because in one example, it's not even necessarily the severity of how much one has engaged in the behavior. Would it be fair to say it's that appraisal of what that could mean? And if that brings about something that might interfere with, say, social or work functioning, school functioning, then it's impacting you. It doesn't, exactly. doesn't have to be to the quick. So that's a really helpful working understanding. And as we talk today, first of all, we're going to touch on really how BFRBs are not a one-size-fit-all. They are unique, just like these couple examples we were saying with the executive versus maybe somebody that is having the more kind of raw down to the quick of the nail bed. But in terms of how we think about BFRBs, because we're going to see this across families, right? We're going to see this with our kids. We might deal with it ourselves. We might see it in our partner or our spouse, in our parents. And so it's going to show up in a myriad of different ways. And it's not a one size fits all. So if we could talk a little bit more about some of the idiosyncratic nature of the BFRBs. Okay, great. And I think it's so important to understand this notion one size does not fit all because when it does co-occur in a family, if you are a person who has a BFRB, of course you understandably assume that the other person who has a BFRB feels the same way that you do. And that's what we really need to understand. BFRBs really affect people differently and they also function differently. So first thing that's really important, there has been some very recent research which validated an assumption that we've had for a long time, which is there's a sensory component for all people who engage in a BFRB. Now, what that means is there can be sensation at the site. So where somebody might, for example, their hand is drawn up to their hair to pull their hair, there might be some tingling or itching at the site. So that's one possibility. For somebody, that's absolutely true. For somebody else, they might really enjoy the texture of the hair between their fingers. For somebody else, they might pull the hair and actually like that experience of what it feels like to pull the hair out. And for somebody else, none of those things matter. They actually want the hair in front of them so that they can visually look at it or tactily play with it between their fingers. Some people will smell the hair, some people bite the end of the hair, some people will eat the hair. Any or all of those things might be incorporated in a hair pulling experience. And the thing is, again, for one person, it could be a variety of those components that I just said. And for somebody else, it could be a different, totally different experience. The other really interesting thing is it can be one experience in the beginning of the day for one person, and that same person had the different experience later in the day. So we really do, as you mentioned earlier, understand the function of the behavior. We have to understand the function of the behavior throughout the day because it serves different functions. Now, I just was focusing on hair pulling, but the same thing is true for nail biting, skin picking, picking at cuticles, the same sensory experiences, visual, smelling, biting, biting the skin or the nails, any of those things. So it can be any combination for, you know, the hair pulling, skin picking, nail biting, any of those behaviors. 
And again, it serves different functions. So we definitely understand the sensory component because that's really important for everybody who experiences BFRB. The other thing is BFRBs serve different functions as well. So sometimes they create some awakeness or alertness. So if someone is feeling a little lethargic or tired, they might engage in a BFRB in order to pep themselves up. And other times in the day, it can be done as a relaxing activity. I'm, I'm feeling kind of hyped up and I want to relax, so I'm going to engage in this activity. Or I'm lying in bed and I want to go to sleep and I'm going to do this until I fall asleep. So it serves a lot of different functions. And to understand that is really important. The hard thing, again, for families is not to make those assumptions. Just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean that the other family member who might be engaging in the BFRB feels the same way. So you really have to just try to be as much of a blank slate and to understand this is somebody else's experience and what might help me is not necessarily going to help them. That is such a great point because we respond to things differently, right? And so this is no different. There are going to be some people that really like to settle down and unwind by reading a good book. There are other people that are going to want to settle down and wind down by listening to music and playing video games. Which one's right? Which one's wrong? Neither. It's just that we're individual people. And I'm so glad that you also brought up how it can change within a person as well. Because our sensory systems, they accumulate throughout the day. And there are going to be certain things that we're neutral, kind of like take it or leave it. There are certain things we're going to be avoidant of. We all have our different sensory diets. And there's going to be certain things that we're more drawn to and are going to be helpful for us when we need some calm or relaxation or we need to be alert. Who, who amongst us has driven with a car full of children at night and been like, oh, I'm going to stay up, doing something to keep themselves alert. I mean, yeah, we have things happening throughout the day that we are coping with and challenging and facing. And so we're going to have different things that are going to comfort us or relax us or alert us or help us cope with our stress. It, it's just going to look varied. And I think it also lends to the point of not only like just because you might have a BFRB and this other person in the family has a BFRB, assuming that they are getting a similar experience, but also because that can change within the person, we don't even need to make an assumption per se. We can help that person. We're going to talk about this more, but we can help that person understand what's going on for them and how to meet that need. We don't have to just guess, well, they must be stressed. They're doing this. Maybe they're not stressed. You could ask them, are you feeling stressed? Hey, everything, how's your day? Was it a good day? What's up? And just talk and communicate with people. So yeah, I mean, that, that's a really, really good point as well. I'm so glad you brought that up additionally about the stress piece, because I think people automatically assume that because they're engaged in this behavior, they must be stressed. And I think that's really important to be able to take a step back, take a deep breath, and really try to assess that a little bit further. Stress absolutely can be a feature for BFRBs. So we know that, we, we need to understand that. 
but it is not the only feature right. of BFRBs. And very often, because we know that BFRBs are engaged most of the time when people are sedentary, which means that they're lying down or sitting down. If the kids who can be pretty articulate about what they're experiencing often will say they're bored. Yeah. They're sitting in class and they're bored. Now, what what can happen is people will assume that they're stressed, so they want to reduce their stress, so they put them in an easier class. Well, now you have a bored child yeah. who's really bored because yeah. they've been in a class that they're they don't they don't need to be in, and it's it's way too easy, and they were bored to begin with. So we don't want to make assumptions. We want to really understand what's going on because. This is an issue that does have to do with the nervous system. We do know that when you're sitting still for long periods of time, which school does require and then requires homework as well, that's not a lot of sensory input for the nervous system at those times. And therefore, engaging in a BFRB does provide some extra sensory experience. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we want to understand is, what is that sensory experience? And as, as you said, how can we meet those needs differently and engage the body differently and have a happy nervous system without necessarily engaging in a BFRB? Yeah, it's such a great point. My daughter, she has ADHD, she's autistic, and she will engage in BFRBs and it actually helps increase her focus. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like it's not a stress thing and it's not a like she can get into some squirrely situations if she's not doing something to help regulate and maintain that attention. And so for her, she wants to pick out. A, she has a number of different ways that this can manifest, but she'll pick out her fingers and she'll listen really, really well. Right. And at what point does the picking become problematic? Not all the picking is problematic, but it can get to that point where she can overdo it. And so really it's about finding kind of what is the function, again, of the picking behavior that's helping her attend better in class or wherever the environment is that she's needing to attend, maybe gymnastics, directions, all that stuff. And are there some behavior substitutes that we can provide for her, a behavior blocker where she can still get, if we know what she's getting out of that experience, where she can still get that and she can choose it as an option. Sometimes she might and sometimes she's going to choose her, her fingers. But we see how that function really helps her feel more calm and regulated. And it isn't about stress. It's really about like, hey, I take in a lot in the world and I already have a sensory profile and a way of understanding the world that is unique. And so I am going to do this. It serves a function. And so in the OCD community, we talk about these words ego dystonic and ego syntonic. OCD, hands down, ego dystonic, because it's like who we would never want to be, what we don't want to do, what we don't believe about ourselves and fear what if it could be true. This is OCD. It's ego dissonant. It's distant from what, how I want to see myself. But ego syntonic, when we talk about things that are more in line with our values and things that are helpful for us and can serve a purpose that really does feel congruent with who we understand ourselves to be, then you can see 
in the case with my daughter, how this behavior or many of the different BFRBs that she might engage in are more egocentric for her in being able to attend and be productive and successful in the world that was not made to cater to neurodivergent folks. And so this is a way that she's learned to be able to manage through all those different sensory inputs. And so that can be really helpful, but of course it can get out of hand easily too when you're dealing with lots of urges and you're dealing with constant stimuli and all of that is accumulating throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout time, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think it's an excellent point, the the difference between egocentric and egodystonic. And additionally, not just the obsessional system, which is ego dystonic, but the other thing is the rituals are also like someone who engages in hand washing, for example, and ends up with chapped hands, dry hands. No one would say that they enjoy that experience. That is simply done to reduce the anxiety that they have because they have that obsessional thought going on. So the whole system does not I mean, it works in order to reduce that anxiety. When someone has a BFRB, they're often seeking an experience. They would like to feel certain, certain things. So it's not, it's not engaged in a reduction. It's something that they want to feel and it's appealing. Yeah. So we let appetitive. They're, they're looking for something and that is, that's consistent with, because it's serving a function, as you said, absolutely for themselves and they would like to feel good, not reduce a negative. They want to increase a positive. Additionally, what's interesting is that some schools are getting wise to this idea that providing kids with sensory items Mm -hmm. sometimes can help increase their attention, Mm -hmm. gives the nervous system something else to focus on while they're trying to pay attention and sometimes specifically trying to pay attention, ironically, can create a scenario for being easily distracted. So providing that nervous system something to do settles down the distraction and actually can increase some of that focus. And some schools are getting really good about that. But our group that has BFRBs, one of the things that we can do sometimes is if we find that this can be helpful, and those are lots of ifs. We always have to do a good analysis because we don't want to make assumptions. Right. But if we find that this could be helpful, it's a great opportunity to work with some schools to incorporate some of these, even if it's just for one student, because that's something that might help them. Yeah. I had a client that, and I was like, go you. Such a great idea. She was in a meeting and she was like, I know that I'm going to have a hard time focusing and there wasn't, they all had computers or whatever. She couldn't doodle and that's one of her main things. And so she took apart a, a pen and just reassembled it and took it apart and reassembled it. And I was so proud of her for coming up with the solution in terms of she wanted, she wanted that sense of accomplishment. She wanted to be able to do that thing that would also help her be able to listen better. And she didn't want to do it with her nails. She didn't want to do it with a spot on her arm. And so 
I really, I love the ingenuity of that. Sometimes you might see somebody though, and they're, you know, especially kids, right? You know, if they're sitting there taking a pen apart, come on, Timmy, you need to be paying attention. Or that is taken away from them. They might even get in trouble for taking something apart when they're supposed to be listening to the story or whatever. And so recognizing that actually this is helping somebody be able to tune in and access what they need. And so having the schools coming on board and realizing this helps facilitate people accessing the academic curriculum is huge. That is, that's wonderful. I, I think it's a really, it's a great point. And I just love the ingenuity of your client. And that really does speak to creativity. Mm-hmm. And again, that sort of notion that one size does not fit all. We can all come up with different things that are going to be uniquely satisfying to us. And and we we really want to encourage that. Of course, I have lots of suggestions and can maybe guide your thinking in certain ways, but I really want people to be thinking of for themselves and come up with things that I haven't thought of because those are going to be better for them. And as you're talking, I'm also reminded, I just want to put this out there. There is a the organization you, you had mentioned, the TLC Foundation for Body Focused Repetitive Behaviors. There is an article on their website for teachers and school personnel that directly addresses if you have a student in your classroom, what can you do that will be helpful? And there's sort of lists of do's and don'ts. Yeah. Yeah. That, oh, that's so great. And I will link it along with, there's going to be so many great resources to link, but I always do resources and citations for every episode over at ocdfamilypodcast.com on the blog for this episode. So I will definitely just even do a specific hyperlink for that resource for teachers and students, because I think that could be really, really helpful. And I want to say, are you on the scientific advisory board? I am. Okay. I I was going to say, yeah, yeah, because as Suzanne as well, who was on last year and also a co-author, you guys wrote the parent guide to a hair pulling disorder. And so I really love that because it's emphasizing we're not just talking about BFRBs, y'all. We're talking about the research behind it and the extensive amount of data that has been analyzed, the positive outcomes for treatment. And yeah, I mean, I I just love that because it really gives validity to the credibility of those resources. Like we're not just saying try this, maybe we're saying these things can really work. One of the things I talked about last year with Suzanne, and I think it's worth bringing up here again, is overall, and I say this a lot on the podcast about OCD and other things as well, but our brain's going to brain, right? Our brain's good at braining. And so our brain, if we are wired to be engaging in this BFRB, it doesn't mean it will always wreak havoc that we'll feel at the mercy of the BFRB. But, you know, we may go through times where we don't engage in a BFRB behavior. Okay. That doesn't mean it necessarily goes away. Our brain is still going to brain. So it might ebb and flow. It might pop up. You might pick every day and you get it down to one or two spots. And that is like, wow, you might not pick for months. And then you may go back in and start picking or pulling cheek fighting all like we said it can manifest in a lot of different ways and so the 
goal when we think about treatment and the outcomes that we're looking for isn't that you'll never pick or pull again, that you'll never bite or lip lick or any of these things, nail tear again. It's about you feeling the sense of I can be in control. I can be the driver of this. And I don't feel like it is something that has to then bleed into my everyday functioning and cause this kind of cloud of shame over me. I can feel empowered, really, to be the leader. And sometimes you're going to choose to pick and pull. Sometimes you're going to choose to bite. And sometimes you're not. But it is important to emphasize, like, the goal isn't never pick again. And if you do, I mean, that's what we call the F word in our house, failure, because it's it's such an extreme kind of presentation of I either never pick again and I'm successful or I pick again. Well, you can probably pick again. So that's that's it's not a realistic standard to shoot for. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that's a really great point. I think, you know, the other thing is these behaviors, these body-focused repetitive behaviors are human experiences. If you are a human being, you have engaged in some or all of these these behaviors. The difference is for someone who has a BFRB, it's hard to stop. So as you said, if you say to yourself, I'm never going to pick or pull again, that's like saying I'm not, I'm going to stop being human. You're stop being human. You're a human being. You're going to engage in human experiences. And that's one of them because you might accidentally pull something out or pick something, you know, scratch at something and and a scab comes off and oops, I I engaged in my BFRB again. That's one of those things. So you don't want to be so black or white about it or so extreme. You want to be able to say, ah, I know what's going on. And to Hopefully, if you've gone through treatment and you feel successful in it, then you could say, and I know what I can do. I have some things that I can try. I'm going to bring them back up and try them again. The issue also comes up, which again is our nervous system. Our nervous system, these behaviors are often feeding our nervous systems in, in a certain way. And the truth is, if you are able to meet your nervous system needs differently, your urges often do reduce. So if you can learn to develop a lifestyle that keeps your nervous system happy and enriches your nervous system, you are less likely to engage in those BFRBs over time. If you have a cure mentality and you say, oh, I did all these things, they worked, I stopped picking or pulling or doing my BFRB, and now I don't have to do anything, I'm just cured you're much more likely actually to engage in your BFRB again because you're not keeping your nervous system happy. You're not doing the things that your body has, that you have learned your body needs better. So this idea of being a good caretaker of your body and your nervous system and learning how to take care of that, of being open-minded and willing to learn that maybe something in the future throws you off and it's a new trigger or something that you hadn't experienced to be able to find that interesting mm-hmm. and look at it and learn from it and then develop some good strategies or interventions to help you with that based on what you've learned before. That's a really good way to be that if you can be open-minded and 
open to experiences in the future and open to what your body needs and what your body, the changes of the needs over time and how to work with that as creatively as possible. Yeah. These are really important. Yeah, no, it's it's super important. And just because you're taking a behavior way doesn't mean the need is being met, right? Often, I think this happens a lot. And we deal with this in parenting. We can deal with this in workplaces, all sorts of things. But we go, okay, if you want somebody to stop something, first of all, just saying stop it and not giving any alternative that is going to help address the need or understanding what that function was, that's not going to really lead you anywhere because they're going to replace it somehow. It's If we're stopping, it, I'm thinking of like folks that maybe are trying to quit smoking, right? It's not that you can't try the tactic of going cold turkey, but your body's going to go through withdrawal. You're going to feel distress. What do you do? What have you done in the past when you felt distress? Maybe you've lit up, right? And so if you go into it not having any plan or idea of how am I going to meet the need of dealing with this overwhelm, and again, like we said, stress isn't the only trigger, but it, it certainly can be a big part, then we're really setting ourselves up for a relapse, right? If we're not giving ourselves another outlet to try and regulate through this, right? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you bring up a very good point. And with BFRBs also, we've been talking a lot about the sensory system, which I think is super important. And we never want to forget that because that's really important. But it's the BFRBs are such a complex behavior and they they seem simple. So the solution gets oversimplified. Like you just said, you're having trouble hair pulling. Stop. Stop pulling your hair. And then you're you're biting your nails, stop biting your nails, and then problem solved. But it's more than that. We've got the sensory components, as we've been talking about for a long time. But we also have some cognitive parts, some thoughts that go into it mm-hmm. a lot of times, which is, oh my gosh, could be if I have an urge, I can't do anything about it, so I have to give in to my urge. Or I've tried to stop this behavior before and it never works, so why bother? Or I need to fix this. It's out of it's out of place. It's out of line. My skin doesn't feel smooth. I'm going to fix it by removing the scab or the, the spot. So those thoughts contribute to the behavior as well. And then we also have emotions or different certain internal states. So as we said before, stress and boredom, we, mm-hmm. we don't want to forget boredom. But also people can be in a state of indecision, like, I don't know what to wear today. And they can start engaging in the BFRB. They can uh, be thinking about processing a situation that happened earlier. And they're just, they're thinking it through and they're having certain feelings that come up with that. And that can engage, they can start engaging in their BFRB. Being tired, hungry, those states can also engage, the people can engage in the BFRB mm-hmm. and also being happy mm-hmm. or, or excited or anticipating something in a good way can also, en- people can start engaging in their BFRB. So we have to understand what the emotional states are. And again, remember, there are different states at different times of the day. So we have to really understand how that works throughout the day for a person. Also, different motor movements. We create a chain of behaviors that create a routine. And a lot of times these motor movements start 
in our awareness, but then they become so routine, they get out of our awareness. If you think about brushing your teeth, probably don't really think about, you know, turning the water on and then taking your toothbrush and then wetting it and then putting paste on and then brushing your teeth. And because you just do all of those behaviors routinely and they just come naturally as soon as you walk into the bathroom. Well, the same type of behavior chain happens when you're engaged in a BFRB. If you're sitting at the computer with your elbow on the table and your hand near your face, you might start rubbing your face and noticing a bump and then start picking at the bump. And those motor movements happen right away. Or you go into the bathroom and you look in the bathroom and you start examining your face. But this idea of those routines is really important. And those motor movements that come sometimes almost automatically. And then lastly, there are certain environments or places where people tend to engage in their BFRBs. So it's the car. It can be at sitting at a desk, watching TV, lying in bed in the bathroom. Again, could be anything. I'm just mentioning some right. typical ones. And those things are just really important. So now we have all of these things we've got to tease out and we have to understand and it changes throughout the day. So we have to understand those changes as well, which creates the complex nature mm-hmm. of the BFRB. The issue that comes in when people are trying to manage their BFRB is they often will try one thing. And as I mentioned, five different categories before. And if there are five different things or even three different things that are going on at one time and you're trying one to combat all three, that one little lonely thing is not going to be as effective. So that's why understanding the BFRB and the complex nature of the behavior and then being able to match the complexity with the treatment or the things you're going to try to help yourself, you want to be creative and encompassing or comprehensive, then you have a really good chance of being successful. That is such a great point in terms of the different settings. Like you said, when you're going to be doing more sedentary learning or work, If you're out running, you're probably not sitting there focusing on a spot because your body is busy. Also, if you're like, man, when I stop moving, this happens. I'm going to keep myself busy. We're not doing ourselves any favors if we're not learning how to be able to really enjoy our rest. I mean, as humans, we're busy people. We want to be able to enjoy that rest time so that it's true rest. And if we get down on ourselves because we can't, manage that time without engaging in the BFRB, now it's taking away from, that could be even the main part of the functioning that it's taken away from, of me just being able to rest and restore. Because when I do, I end up getting into trouble with picking or this or that. And so people are like, okay, I'm not going to rest. I do bad things when I rest. And then it's like, well, that's not sustainable. When can you re-energize? You deserve to recharge. We can't help others. We can't even help ourselves if we can't recharge. So, so important. And that habit that you're talking about the different routines. And one of the words that often pops up for me is just kind of how the urges experienced within BFRBs, which is partly why it gets really included in this umbrella of OCD related disorders. 
But sometimes that's reinforced habit, right? Like we're just so used to doing things. Sometimes, again, we're aware of it. Sometimes we're not. But we get so used to doing different things that breaking that habit becomes hard. And so then when we feel or actually do engage in something that was the habit we were trying to break, so often the mentality is, well, I messed that up. Okay, I put all my eggs in that basket. It's messed up. So that's not going to work. That's not true. It just, in that moment, it didn't function as much as the BFRB was that you chose to engage in. That's excellent point. Excellent point. And, and again, what you said before is, is really deserves a little highlighting because I think that's so important. We don't want to eliminate activities in order to manage behaviors. Mm-hmm. If someone engages in a BFRB while they're watching TV, people will say, well, I just won't watch TV. Well, it's like you said, it's not sustainable. And the other thing is, what if you engage in your BFRB before you go to sleep? Are you not going to go to sleep? So we need our sleep, we need our downtime, we need to relax, we need to be able to engage in these activities in a healthy manner that gives us some freedom from the BFRB not to eliminate those activities. I think that's just really important to remember and and keep in mind. Yeah, you know, I had a client once that was getting so caught up and they were very busy. They were an athlete for a lot of different sports. And so they were busy with lots of different seasons and practices and stuff. But when they had that downtime or if it was a rain delay or whatever, and they ended up finding themselves spending some time in a hotel room or, you know, just extra time, that boredom, it wasn't even like, ah, it was just like, ah, all this kind of built up urge And they had not slowed down for so long that they just kind of felt like they were losing control around it, right? And so that's Mm -hmm. where it's like, great, we're in treatment so that we can learn about what's happening here. And so that we don't get caught in that cycle of shame because so often then the client will come back and report like, I'm so ashamed that I did this. I'm so ashamed. Now my streak of however many days that I was able to go is over. And I remember with this client, I said, okay, here's my objective for you this week. I don't want you to sit and and try and tell yourself I'm going to have a certain number of episodes or less, right? I want you, if you engage in your BFRB, I want you to come back and report to me what you liked about it. And they were like, what? And and I said, yeah, because there was so much, they weren't able to see the positive function that it was serving for them because they were so ashamed that they messed up. And and so it was really like, okay, I, I, I get that you're feeling this is hard, but also we need to zoom out and see like, what was good about that? So your objective this week is to come back and, and tell me like, Hey, I engaged in the BFRB. I don't even care how long. I don't care like how to to the degree. I want you to tell me what was good about it. And then be able to identify how to beat those needs, those same needs in, in a different ways. Way. Yeah. And and I think your your point earlier also is uh is important and worth worth highlighting the idea of when people do try to engage in some interventions that they're hoping are going to help them with their BFRB. If it doesn't work, it is not the F word, like you said, the failure. It's an opportunity to learn from that. Either 
the interventions that you're using are not effective enough and you need to, we need to add some more interventions or you are using your interventions, in which case we need to help you use the interventions that are going to work. But we need to evaluate and understand what happened during that period of time. It's because if you just chalk it up to a failure, you're not learning anything. And it's not providing any information for you that you can use in the future. I always say all information is good information. Mm -hmm. I want all of the information because we can always learn from it. And if you were not able to successfully stop yourself with your BFRB, we can learn from that. What happened? And I can't tell you how often I talk to people and we come up with some things for the, the person to try during the week. And they come back and they say, yeah, it didn't work. And I will say, fine. When did you use them? Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't use them. <laughs> then how do we know they don't work yet? So we have to, we have to use things first uh -huh. and find out if they're going to work. People often will say they don't work because they haven't actually tried it. So if they haven't tried it, we need to help you figure out how to try it. In which case, again, that's part of the problem solving that we do as well. How can we help you do this? How can we figure it out to make, we want your life to be successful and also for these things to be as easy as possible. Yeah. How can we do that? So that's part of, that is part of the therapeutic goal while we're, when we're working together. But I think those things are so important. And, and as you said, so easy to foil yourself by, by being too perfectionistic or having goals of not engaging in a behavior. If you're a cognitive behavior therapist, you're going to say those aren't great goals because we cognitive behavior therapists want you to be doing something. Mm -hmm. So if not engaging the behavior, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And what happens sometimes is when people say, I didn't do my BFRB this week, which is fantastic. I'm so glad. How were you able to do that? If someone says, I don't know, I always call that luck. You had a lucky week, which is fine. And that, I mean, we can do that, but we can't create luck. Yeah, we can't rely on it. Yeah. It can recreate action. Mm -hmm. If there are things that you did or you know you did that work for you, that we can recreate. Yeah. One of the examples Suzanne used last year, and I use it with clients all the time because I'm like, I relate to this so hardcore, was about going to like a Mexican restaurant and get like a basket of chips. Here in the States, y'all, like this is a delicious, wonderful pastime for folks waiting to order and all that. You can go. They have these warm, salty, greasy chips. They're amazing, right? They're not the healthiest and sometimes you might go overboard before your food even comes, right? And then you feel real bloated and then you might feel like, oh, this wasn't healthy. This isn't going to help me stay on track. Balancing things out for myself nutritionally. But the goal is not to be able to go in and go that we're never going to have the chips. Because come on, that's not realistic. But do we want to go in and have five baskets of chips before we get to enjoy our meal and feel like, blah, like it's I'm so overly full that I feel awful now? No, we want to be able to engage and function and be able to leave and be happy and not be like, oh, my gosh, I really overdid it on those chips. 
or have everyone else at the table and our little metaphor here look at you and be like, wow, you really, you really ate all those chips. Like, that's going to make me want to eat more chips because I'm going to feel bad about how many chips I ate. And at this point, I'm just trying to survive. And so in terms of when we think of family members coming in, I think often the idea of don't do this, stop doing that, is intended to be supportive, mostly, not always, but intended to be supportive, but also doesn't often help the situation. If you walk in and see somebody picking at some scabs on the arm that they've been struggling with for a long time, you're picking again. Like, why are you doing that? We're going, we're seeing Ruth, we're seeing Nicole, we're going and doing these different things. You know, you're supposed to pick up the fidget or whatever over here. It's not helping the person with the BFRB be like, you're right. I feel on the right course now. Instead, that's going to bring up a lot of big feelings for them that might increase the intensity of either engaging or abstaining, but not because of uh, us coping with whatever we needed to cope with, but because we feel the pressure, which means when we do engage, we might go even harder than we want to. And so there can be a lot of complex pieces to this because it is a complex disorder and how it functions for a person. But when we're looking at kind of family support and how do we help our loved ones When often, I think, especially from the parenting side, feedback I hear a lot is like, this is so annoying and embarrassing and frustrating, or I'm just worried they're going to get bullied. And so they're having all these feelings that are coming out. And your your loved one is having all these feelings that's experiencing the BFRBs, and it can be tough. So can we talk a little bit about how this affects the family? And then more broadly, we can start to talk about What are some more helpful ways versus things that can end up, even if well-intentioned, being a little more harmful to the process? Right. Absolutely. And I do think I do think parents and and loved ones of someone who has a BFRB, if you walk into a room and you see the person engaging in a BFRB, your first inclination is going to be, oh, stop, you know, oh, my goodness. And I do think that that is well-intentioned. I mean, I, I, I really do, because I think the idea is you're trying to help. Mm-hmm. So understanding that, first of all, from the parent's perspective, if the parent can understand I'm trying to help, that is useful. I also think if the, you know, if the person, if it's a child, if the child's old enough to understand that the parent is trying to help, that also can just help some of the tension around the house. Mm-hmm. But secondly, the parent understanding that this is not helping. Mm-hmm. Is then the second piece of that. Okay, I'm trying to help and my natural inclination is not helping. Now what? And to be open to that, now what? Now what do I do? Because I think that is really important to be able to understand this is hard for me. It's hard for my loved one in the family. Now what do I do? So a lot of times, What I like to do with the client, even young kids, is talk about what is it that you want your parent to do? And so that the kids have some say in what's happening. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not a permanent thing. It's what is basically what we're going to try to do this week. And what's so interesting is very often 
the first step is for the parent to take a step back. So the kid will say, I want my parent not to say anything. Okay, that's a good thing to try this week. So the parent's going to resist the urge to say something. And that is so instructive and informative for the parent because they find that's really hard. Hmm. Now, that seems like a really simple thing. Just don't say anything. Just like they're thinking it's a simple thing. Just stop pulling your hair. Right. So it provides some, you know, some insight in a certain way of saying, gosh, this is really hard for me. And I thought it was going to be simple. That's something that that can be instructive. Secondly, then we can look at, okay, once we've gotten a little bit of, you know, healthier distance, how can we invite the family member in to do something that's helpful? Something like sometimes, you know, handing band-aids, handing a fidget, providing some gloves or some group of strategies maybe that would be that the child or the person in the family who's engaging in the BFRB has identified would be would be helpful for them. Mm-hmm. So sometimes that's helpful. What we find is less helpful is a parent saying, go get your gloves or go get this or go get that. That, again, feels a little punitive. So the idea of providing it and also sometimes providing it wordlessly because the discussion can also be emotionally provocative mm-hmm. that evoke a lot of strong feelings for the person who's engaged in the BFRB. So having that nonverbal communication can be helpful. And also remembering that the child is the one who initiated it and then has the opportunity to evaluate how did it go? How successful was it? What do you want changed? How do you want your your parent to do it this week? So every week we're adjusting things Mm -hmm. so that the parent is not sort of stuck with one thing or another, but is moving along and making adjustments along the way. But I'd also say being a parent of a child who has a BFRB is a real unique position to be in. And it is not easy for parents because it's very hard to talk to friends about it. Sometimes you feel very peerless, you know, that there that people don't understand. So you know, either confide in some close friends who are able to be really supportive and support does not mean this is what you should do. Oh, you should be doing more of this. If you have friends that are telling you what to do, that's not going to be that supportive. Having somebody just say, gosh, I can't even imagine how hard that is. This must be so, so difficult for you. Getting an opportunity to talk about it, getting an opportunity to go out and have a cup of coffee, go for a run, go out to the movies, do something for yourself that's rejuvenating is super important. And also, if you can't find that support system within your friends or family, then seek out therapy yourself for support Mm -hmm. just you because it's a hard position to be in to be a parent of somebody with a BFRB and to recognize that as uniquely difficult. Because I think if you can recognize your own feelings and pinpoint them, you'll be less frustrated. And also taking care of those feelings is super important. And it's an excellent model for your child. Yeah. I mean, you're pointing out, it's such a great point. It's really a parallel process. Your child is trying to meet a need and the things, the habits, the different complex multivariate factors going on within their BFRB are 
maybe meeting the need sometimes, but also leading to this feeling of distress. And so we're trying to help empower them. You as the parent also trying to meet the need and be a good parent and help them. But it's it's very much that parallel process. And so it does really help build some connection. We say a lot here at the podcast, we're better together. Yeah, you guys are not alone. You guys are both experiencing this thing in different ways. The parent maybe is going through a more emotional kind of cognitive process around the meaning, but you also have those behaviors of trying to intercept or prevent these events from happening. Oh, I don't want to stress the child. That'll trigger their BFRB. And understanding, again, it's not all about stress. It's not all about boredom. It's not all about excitement. It can be all or any of these things, right? It just depends. Because we're unique human beings, but even beyond human beings. One of the interesting things I remember reading some of the literature at BFRB.org for the TLC Foundation, talking about there are a number of different animals, too, that have histories of engaging in different BFRB practices, whether it starts as something for grooming that can go and serve a, a, a greater function or not. But we're seeing this primitive development happening, not just in humans. And so that kind of circles us back even to the research and the conversation where we started today. If you're handling your BFRB one way and somebody else in your family is handling theirs in a different way, you can't assume that the function's the same. But it also points to that familial piece that there are a number of different factors that research are pointing to that we think really contribute to BFRBs. So we have that genetic component can be part of it. That environmental component can be part of it. But it's important to be able to understand, again, sometimes I've had parents who have said, this was such a hard thing for me to deal with and nobody ever intercepted. Nobody ever came in. And so now I see my kid doing it and I'm like, they will not have the lack of support, but it does come across in this kind of punitive way, right? Their intention mm -hmm. is to be loving and to try and save their child from this. And it's like, well, actually, you know, some of us have blue eyes and some have brown eyes and some of our brains are going to be wired for this. It doesn't mean we have to feel hopeless in it. That's the hope in treatment. But it does mean our brain's going to brain. So understanding our brain and how this functioning is manifesting in different ways is really important. Absolutely. I always talk about make friends with your nervous system, you know, <laughs> so, that you, so that you really, you know, because rather than fighting against it, make friends with it and then you can really work in harmony. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it, it's so true. Like, so all of my kids are autistic. And we've talked about overlap of autism and OCD. We have some of that going on in the household, but we've, we're very pro neuroaffirming experiences in life, whether it's therapy or school or just even what it means to play outside. What's enjoyable for one it may not be enjoyable for the other. But this is very much a philosophy we take on in that as well. And I think so many times we feel compelled to fight against our nervous system instead of just embracing like this is how my brain works so how can I make the most of life 
and ride the waves knowing where the current is going versus feeling like I am constantly rowing upstream and I'm tired and I'm exhausted, right? And so it's something that whether you're allistic or autistic or any kind of brain processing, BFRB, OCD, being able to go like, okay, I'm understanding how my brain works. And yes, we can be friends with our nervous system and then go, okay, so considering how my brain works, is this going to be helpful? Is this going to be harmful? Is this going to be neutral? And knowing that is a strength. It's a huge strength. But I think there's a lot of pressure to fit a mold, to fit an expectation, both from society, but also often for ourselves. We put these really really hard expectations on ourselves. And then it it can lead to a lot of this distress that we're experiencing in in a myriad of ways, but BFRB certainly included there. And so in talking about strategies for family members coming in, one of the things you highlighted was asking your kid or your loved one, or if you're the BFRB warrior, telling whether they're asking you or not be like you know what I could communicate this how I would like you to respond I don't want you to look at me I don't want you to body scan me maybe just come and give me a little hug and kiss a kiss on my head and say I love you I know what that means that means you me but also that means like hey I'm with you in this and it's gonna look different for different people some people are gonna be like I don't want to be touched don't touch Mm -hmm. Uh, Some people would rather have you say a certain thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. But wow, it takes your back because it's like, it's such a simple thing. But so often in so many areas of life, we don't just say, you know what I could really use here? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Support would look like this. We know what support doesn't look like. (laughs) Uh, And so being able to focus like, what I want, how would I want? mom to respond or my husband to respond or whatever if they came in and and see me engaging in that BFRB. Additionally, I think it's also really important because I think what happens is this particular topic very often can take over the the family and and then you lose the forest through the trees. So if a child goes to school and has a hard test and comes home and you go, what happened to your face? Rather than, oh, tell me about your test first. Uh So let's talk about what your life is like. And then we can talk about your BFRB if that's what you want to talk about. But don't forget the child has other things and other interests and is a full rounded human being who also happens to engage in a BFRB. And when you only talk about the BFRB, you're missing the the whole rest of this child. And and that is really important. It's interesting. I had a, a client who was 13 at the time and she fired her her psychiatrist. And I asked her, I said, what is it that you want from your doctors? And she's like, I want them to talk to me like I'm a person, not like I'm a BFRB. And she's, that was one of the things that we, we always talked. We always talked about, you know, how school, how's, how are her extracurricular activities? What's going on with her friends? All of those things were discussed first, and then we would talk about her BFRB. So I understood the context of her life every single session. 
And then we talked about her BFRB, whereas she really didn't want to just be hit with the BFRB and that's it because she was she felt super strongly about that. And I think that's really so important to remember for doctors, for parents, for family members. It's just important to remember to really focus on your child who also happens to engage in a BFRB. Right, right. Because it's the tip of the iceberg that you're seeing the BFRB and there is a whole person underneath there wanting to be seen. And for any of us, would we want to be seen for this one thing that we're feeling we're struggling with and that be the focus? You know, if I'm like, <laughs> there's the there's a classic scenario, right, of do these pants make me look big or whatever, right? I don't know. And everyone's like, yeah, it's never it never leads to a good place. But what if the conversation was always about like, yeah, you do look big. Oh, look how big you are now. Oh, my mm-hmm. gosh. Do you want to eat that? Because you know how big you don't want to be big. And it's like, oh, my gosh, if that was the message all the time, that would that would be horrible. Right. That would just. It would be so distressing, and and the focus is on the one thing right, that you already are feeling some lack of control around, that you have this kind of probably love-hate relationship with because part of it serves this function, whether you're aware of what the function is or not, and part of it also feels out of your control. And so being able to really ask the person I, I'm sure you did but I would praise that client so much because I would say I say this to kids all the time some of the things kids do y'all I feel there's a lot of chatter about oh my gosh what's gonna be the future and the iPads and this and that but I feel optimistic about our future because kids are pretty cool and they can sometimes just really do these things that as adults we really really struggle to just go, okay, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I need, right? Mm -hmm. And so asking them, asking them is huge. And also for you to be able to have your outlet where you can ask for help, where you can maybe do some of your own therapy if you're getting a lot of the feedback chatter of, well, I would do this and I wouldn't do that and I wouldn't baby them and I wouldn't do that. And it doesn't help, right? Just like Mm -hmm. your kiddo, it's not helping them to just be like, well, stop. And so in terms of if you're dealing in your family dynamic, whether it's kid, you, a partner with a BFRB, when might it be a good time to think about going into care specifically for this? Often there's other stuff happening for folks, too, so it can get complicated. But also, yeah, when would we say, okay, this has met the threshold enough that maybe we need to seek some outside help and just have another person on the team here because we're better together helping facilitate this process what would you say because I think sometimes I hear the feedback and it's going to be different for different people but they're like well when is it bad enough to need therapy when is it bad enough to need medication when is it bad enough that I'm not just being like whiny about how this causes distress to me versus it's really impacting my functioning. Well, I think that's a a great point. And I think the fact is, like you said, it's different for every person. But I, I think, you know, bad enough. Why do we have to get into a situation where we're super suffering in order to then 
legitimately, so to speak, ask for help. Why not ask for help at any point in time? So if you're at all uncomfortable or you think this is going to make you uncomfortable and you, you'd like to get the resources you know, under your belt so that you can avoid that, then it's time. Any, any, at any point in time, it's time. The caveat to that is when you're in a family, what becomes an issue or can become an issue is the parent can feel like, oh my gosh, you know, my child really needs help. And the child is like, eh, you know, I'm good not, with it. <laughs> not so much. And, and that's one of those things I will often say, what I'd like to do is I'd like to meet the child once. We'll agree on a one meeting. Let me just tell you a little bit about a BFRB so that at least you have some information. And let me tell you about what treatment looks like so that you have some information. And if the child is old enough, so a teen, then we talk about, and what is it that you might want to do? Because for a 15 or a 16-year-old, your parent can't determine that you absolutely have to have treatment because that person has to be willing to engage in the treatment. If they're not willing to engage in the treatment, then it's not a good time. Right. And a very tough outcome is particularly for a teen, but anybody to go into treatment, not engage in it, not be successful and feel like that therapy doesn't work. Right. Therapy does work, but you have to engage in it. And right. if you're not engaging in it, it's much better to take a break and wait until you're ready to engage. The other thing is, I would like to be a positive memory or option for somebody. That's why I say, let's meet once. Let's talk. Let's, let's find, you know, some common ground. Let's, I hope what I say you thought was interesting. And if you want to come back, that's great. If you want to wait a little while, that's great. I'm here. I'm interested to see you when you're ready. But the thing you have to be really careful about is, is a parent really, you know, a feeling anxious about the child getting the help, but the child not being ready. Now, I the caveat here is a lot of times people will then take what I've said, that notion, and apply it to like an eight-year-old. Well, an eight-year-old's different. An eight or nine-year-old can really talk with them. They might not think they're ready for treatment, but if you're a therapist who works with kids and you're used to that, there are ways to engage kids. There are ways to motivate kids. You work with reward systems and get them really interested in, in engaging in behavior change, get them cognitively interested in, in what BFRBs are and what the treatment is, and also engaged in the creativity of the process. It is absolutely possible, even if they go in thinking, eh, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to do this or I don't know what, what it's about. An eight-year-old or nine-year-old, of course that's true. Totally understand that. But there are lots of ways of getting them engaged and on board. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And you have a, an ability to create an environment, too, that is going to help foster access and learning for those tools. And really, as you get into your later teens, you're getting closer to being an independent adult. They're not always going to live in your house. Some some of y'all are like, promise? <laughs> but they're not always going to live in your house. And they need to be able to understand themselves and what they need, whether they're at home or whether they're at college or whether they're at 
a business summit somewhere. You know, you were talking about the gentleman who who was feeling the distress because as an executive, how is he supposed to act? There's a lot of different pressure and he feels that this takes away from that. And so I think it's a really great point in terms of talking to your kiddo. I think often too, and I'm going to guess you hear this too, Ruth, is if people are so they build up a defense because they're like, you're going to tell me I can't do this thing that has been, even though I don't want to do the thing to the extent I do the thing, I want to be able to do the thing and you're going to take that thing from me. And so sometimes there's just some misinformation about, and again, sometimes the parents will be like, yeah, we're going to go to them. So you stop doing that thing. And so they're like, yeah, I don't want to do that. No, no thanks. But that's where even with an eight-year-old, you can help correct some of that. And what I love about eight-year-olds, they are concrete. And once they get it and it works for them and they start to understand it, just like anything else they're learning in school or whatnot, they're like, oh. And then they can, they, they can learn how to engage with that, right? And so Sometimes I think I've used this analogy with at least one family I've worked with. It's like we need to learn how to read before we start reading these big things, right? So we're going to learn the foundational pieces of what's going on for your kiddo, and then they're going to be able to read. Mm -hmm. We're not going to have to, like, literally the possibilities are endless on how awesome this dude's trajectory is going to be. But it's really that understanding of self. And I think that there is some thought around going to treatment could be expensive and I don't want to be in treatment forever. But I also see parents who have found like the most interesting gadgets and remedies and creams from the dermatologists or or med spas. I would veer away from med spas, y'all. If you're going to med spa, people are like, but you could spend hundreds to thousands on different solutions to try and deal with something that, again, is going to shape shift based on what's going on for us and the function that's serving. And so sometimes just getting that psychoeducation about understanding your sensory system and understanding you don't have to fight against it. And you know what? Sometimes smoothing out a spot is going to be what I needed, but sometimes it's not. And I can look at myself and realize I'm a unique individual that isn't a cookie cutter, always feeling the same way about everything. And and so it's really kind of an embracing of yourself. Like, hey, this is me. That's okay. And mm -hmm. as we get to know ourselves better, then we can meet our needs in more rich ways. It doesn't, sometimes it's going to be the BFRB. Sometimes they're going to be like, yep, I'm going to pick. That's what I'm going to do. That's how, that's what I'm choosing right now. But oftentimes they have a lot of other choices, too, that they can lean into or other things they can look at in assessing kind of the story behind it and the meaning they've applied to it and realize, oh, there's more than one way to read this story. OK, OK. And that can resolve a piece of that. And, and it's really amazing to see that happen in treatment. And so. Having that happen for your loved one, if they're battling with a BFRB, that's great. But also for you, going through that parallel process, realizing, oh, I'm learning about myself. I'm learning that I really wanted to help my child. And we say this in OCD all the time, too. Thank you for loving your child. You're trying really hard to love your child. 
And we're going to just fine tune the things so that OCD isn't taking that love. BFRB is not stealing and hogging that love, but your child's able to feel it. Great. Absolutely. Another thing. I loved what you said. Why does it have to be bad enough? I, I feel the same about so many different things. Therapy, uh, you know, it's the whole thing, though. You know, sometimes people don't do car maintenance. They wait till the car is broken down and they go because they're like, I don't want to pay the money and take the time. And it's like, oh, a little oil change might have prevented the transmission from going. Right. So it can happen in a myriad of ways. But what would you say for folks like say they are going into treatment? A family is going in. And at what point would you want to cue other people into this team? I know parents sometimes will talk to teachers. They will talk to coaches or whatnot and be like, hey, this is what's going on for the kids. Sometimes in helpful ways, sometimes not. But when would you recommend having some conversation with other overlapping, whether it's extracurricular or school or work, folks and say, yeah, they should know about my kid's BFRB and, and be included in this conversation? It's such an important question, and it comes up all the time. Mm -hmm. So let me give you a scenario that potentially might not work. And that is when, when parents, sometimes very well-meaning, always talk to the, the school about the BFRB and maybe the specific teacher. Mm -hmm. Now, they just say, this, my child is BFRB. And, and a lot of times when, when they're sitting and taking tests and, and working on a, a, a project in school, that's when they're going to engage in their BFRB. Mm -hmm. What happens then is teachers who are also very well-meaning and overworked, I might add, they then think, oh my gosh, what can I do to help this child? Now, they don't know anything about BFRBs potentially. And there are times where they say, well, I'm going to put this child in a separate room so that they're going to be by themselves and that will be a lot easier for them and so on. Well, that's a perfect recipe for more engagement in a BFRB, for example. Or I'm going to put this child in a less stressful class so that they're, they're not going to be as stressed out with the projects or the, the tests. And so at any rate, you're leaving a teacher to decide what to do based on no information. Or I've actually had the experience with where a teacher actually did have some experience with the BFRB, but of course put her experience with the BFRB on this child, which again, was not useful. So my suggestion for that is to just use that as a cautionary tale and beware that if you are going to tell the school and you don't always have to, so that you have to determine whether it's going to be beneficial for your child or not. But if it is beneficial for your child, not only are you going to give them information about BFRBs, don't assume knowledge, you need to give information. And again, TLC Foundation has a pamphlet on BFRBs, which can be easily given out to schools. But secondly, then you have to have an ask of the school. You have to know exactly what it is you are asking of the school that is going to be helpful to your child. Maybe you're going to relax the rule on no hats and your child will get a chance to wear a hat. Your child may have an opportunity to have some fidgets in their spot. Your child may be the runner, so to speak, 
and give messages to the office because getting up and being active midway during the class is helpful. Whatever it is that you think or you and the teacher think, because you're going to have to collaborate with the teacher and find what's reasonable. Mm -hmm. But whatever it is, you if you're going to give information to the school, you must ask them something. You don't want to give them information and just leave it up to them to solve it. So if you're giving information, you might also say, if you're not asking them to do anything, I want you to be aware. I don't want you to do anything and be very concrete and specific. But the schools, the schools are going to want to try to help. So give them, give, give them information about how they can be helpful if that's what you're asking. The other thing is, a lot of times kids don't need the schools to be aware. They can have fidgets. They can wear wear a fidget bracelet or, you know, maybe there's no hat. There's no rule about hats in school or something or they're going to wear Band-Aids on their fingers. We don't need teachers involved in any of those things. Right. So they don't automatically have to be clued in. Right. But you're if you are finding that you want their help, then clue them in, but then tell them exactly what it is that you want help with. The same thing for coaches and extracurricular activities, any sports or so on, that again, what is it that you want to be done and that that you're going to give information and then you're going to ask them to do something very specific. But the other thing is also, again, remember, remember the teachers have a lot and coaches have a lot of other kids to be dealing with. So Whatever you're going to ask them to do has to be simple enough for them to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. You can't ask somebody to sit with your child all day long and chart every single time that they engage in their BFRB or make sure that they have hard candy in their mouths and, and that you're providing them hard candy all the time. You're just, you can't ask teachers to do things that are labor intensive and unreasonable given the number of kids that they have. So if you're not familiar with things that you can ask. Again, the TLC Foundation has some things that are often suggested within the school. Yeah. So there's an article, actually several on that, or work with your therapist and have your therapist work with the school or run it by somebody. You might even, as a parent, you might even call the guidance counselor, talk to the guidance counselor, say, this is what I'm thinking about asking the teacher. What do you think? If, if you don't know whether it's an appropriate ask or not. But these are ways to get information and to sort of figure out what it is that, that would be helpful. But again, if you're going to inform anybody outside the family, be clear on what it is that you're informing and why you're informing that person. What is it that you want from them to help you? Yeah, great points. And it's really, it's more of the same, right? For the person dealing with their own BFRB for the family around them or for the support people around them. Like, we don't just say, here's this information. There's no, like, <laughs> substitute or no support for what we're telling. We're just going to say it. Like, no, go in there with a plan. The same way you would say to your child, how do you want me to respond if I come in the room and see you engaging in this? know how you would want the school to respond if they were to walk in and see your child engaging in this. But also, and even if it's an itty bitty, like uh, with my daughter in preschool last year, she's a kindergartner now, she would have every now and then need some band-aids or whatnot. Um, and then she'd pick off the band-aids because she loves to pick at things, right? But also it helps her maintain attention. I always ask permission 
to the person, which not a lot of four-year-olds, she was four at the time, uh, get that asked of them. But I think even for four-year-olds, you know what? I think it might be helpful if we talk with your teacher. Can we share about this? What I know a lot of folks don't like, and I wouldn't like it either, to be fair, is you going to these important people in their life, coach or, you know, maybe a, a favorite teacher and saying, hey, did you know this thing's happening without any real plan? Then you're like, well, now I just feel kind of exposed. Mm-hmm. And I choose to share that. And yeah. That's pretty personal. So say you have a BFRB and you had like a strap or a pant line that was rubbing up against it and it was sore. Nobody else has seen it. Does teacher need to know that you have the sore on your stomach because you picked at it too much? Like now you're just feeling embarrassed, right? And now it's like, ugh, who else is going to find out what's going to be said? Like it just adds to the distress. And so what is the function of it? You know, for some, it might be I want to get a 504 to be able to wear a hat because we have some different spots going. And again, you ask the kid, is this something that you want? And you can be a part of that process together, but also giving realistic expectations. They're not like your child's new one-on-one that is just going to handhold them through life. And they can't be handheld through life. You can't do that as a parent, even if you want to. Your teacher's not going to be able to do it. They need to be able to do life on their own within these different environments. And so I I will get that sometimes, too, from parents that are co-parenting and sometimes have a strained co-parenting relationship. Well, when they go to the other parent's house and this is happening and it's like, you know what? Your child has experience dealing with very different environments in this. And if they can be successful in whatever environment they're in, then more power to them. Like we can look at the strength and and find the strength of being in these different environments. And if this co-parent doesn't believe the child even has a BFRB and you're coddling them, well, okay, they're not going to be very helpful on the team. But guess what? Not everyone in life is going to be helpful on your team. And so we have an ability to manage those situations of helping the kid be empowered with the information that's going to help and how they choose to use that in different environments is ultimately up to them. But they're going to have to learn how to do that in life anyway. So I don't see it as there's no hope if we're not all exactly on the same page. Life isn't all on the same page. So that's okay. It's okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So in terms of for clinicians, I have a feeling even if people don't treat BFRBs that they, if they were to ask, like, you know, even ask, sometimes it's not asked. Like many things, if you just ask people, like, oh, yeah, that, I do this, you'd be like, wow. But sometimes we don't know the information because we haven't asked. But in terms of clinicians that have seen it or maybe are currently referring out or have been interested in learning more about it. Chances are you see it in more than just your client population. You probably see it in people you know in life as well. It's very common. What advice would you have for them in terms of what you and I were talking before recording about training through the TLC Foundation? You also just put out this book with this training manual for clinicians. But can we talk a little bit about helping clinicians know where to go for the resources and some strategies for learning more about BFRBs? 
Absolutely. Because I, th- I think that is really important. And one of the things that clients have found is that they go to professionals who don't know much or sometimes anything about BFRBs and they get a lot of misinformation mm-hmm. or, or misguided help. And then they feel really frustrated. Mm-hmm. So get good information, I think, is the first thing. And the TLC Foundation is a good resource for that. They have a it's a professional training institute that does uh, provide CEUs. Mm-hmm. At, and that is one avenue for gaining information and training in treating BFRBs. But also there's a just a boatload of articles on the website, as well as research articles, which can be really helpful. Yeah. And then we also have, we've got several self-help books out there, which for a clinician can be helpful as well because mm-hmm. they guide the client through the, the treatment process as well as providing a lot of uh, psychoeducation mm-hmm. uh, about BFRBs. And then we also have a treatment manual I'll cut off the presses Yay. on how to treat BFRBs. And this is very specifically for clinicians. So we're thinking that that's going to be helpful. And then we're also currently writing a workbook that can be used in conjunction with the manual or also could be a standalone. And again, that could be something that a client could be going through and the therapist could be working with the client. Yeah. Or the therapist can work with the manual and the client might work with a a workbook. But these are all different things to consider. And I will also say, I and other people on the scientific advisory board are often called for some supervision or uh, guidance on a particular case. And I would also encourage that as well. Reach out to those of us that have been doing this for a long time. And if you need some some help with understanding where to go or, or you have a particularly complicated case, we're really happy to help you and we can set up a time to have that that peer supervision and interaction. And also that's a really good opportunity to supplement a training because getting that supervision can be really in- instructive and, and helpful. So there are varieties of ways of getting trained, but I would really encourage people to make sure that they they do these things because there is information and it's important information to yeah. get out there because people are suffering and they suffer more when professionals don't understand what it is that they're going through. Yeah. You know, it's interesting I, where I work locally and see clients, there's a pediatric clinic in addition to our counseling services, et cetera. And they do a lot of PTOT, speech and language, SLP work with a lot of pediatric cases, but I was, I was over there dropping off my own kid for, for one of their therapies and saw somebody engaging in the slip biting that they were doing a lot. And I, you know, I happened to know these staff members. And so I went and talked with an OT afterwards and I was like, Hey, I just, I just observed and I don't need to know anything about what's going on. But I, I just observed a client engaging in what I would guess is a BFRB and not just an isolated event and was wondering how much you guys know about BFRBs. And they were like, yeah, I don't know what that is. 
And it's interesting because in terms of so many of the strategies that they're doing and helping with sensory integration issues and whatnot, like the OT field, especially pediatric OT field, seems like such a valuable resource in understanding all those sensory components that feed in to the BFRB process and, and just life in general, right? But it was interesting. And so I went to the clinical director and um, I said, you know, what if I did like a, 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 we do newsletters or whatnot, a staff thing to learn a little bit more about BFRBs, just something to be like peak interest and go, oh, this might be this thing. Maybe mm-hmm. I ask somebody to learn more about that. You don't have to be the expert in it. But it's a natural avenue where people are already going and we're like going to see more of these things because there is such a large sensory component. And so even understanding that and helping educate the people in your community as you learn to, not in a pretentious way, but in a let's be curious together, because there's a lot of helpful collaboration that can happen, especially w- between those different services to understand and be able to get that information out to folks. But yeah, I mean, I did a water cooler chat about BFRB, shared that video with them, and they were like, oh, I have a BFRB. And I'm like, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. It's it's common. It's very common. And so breaking down some of the stigma and just a little bit of insight sometimes can make such a big difference for a client. If they are able to take the shame out of the experience and and feel like there's hope, sometimes they'll go and be very industrious and find their things and pinpoint their things and start working their strategies and feel a lot better. They just needed to know that they weren't broken in the first place. Absolutely. And and so a little bit of information goes a long way. And I think you're absolutely right. But you're you're also so right. It has to be good information and accurate information because we do want to help people with that shame experience. And to the degree that we can help lift that shame and and help, you know, uh, dispel it, that would be, that's fantastic. Yeah. So really having a good understanding of, of what BFRBs are and having a community makes a big difference. And just personally, I, you know, when I go to the dermatologist, I talk to my dermatologist about BFRBs. When I go to get my hair done, I've talked to my hairdressers about BFRBs and I bring books. I train people that there are resources and people are familiar with these BFRBs and therefore they can be helpful too. Such great points. And I, I would even be as bold to say, like, even if you don't have to specialize in BFRBs, but if you are treating within the OCD specialty world, it really behooves us because we're going to get anybody that has a sense of urgency, compelled responses, we're likely to get these clients referred into us, right? And so we don't have to be an expert on all the things, but I think in terms of understanding what some of these OCD-related disorders are so you can direct them to somebody that you know is giving out good information, that's really helpful. And so one of the things that you and I were talking about before we started recording is how the IOCDF conferences have started really having some added tracks, whether for a day or for the course of the entire weekend, where if you wanted to be on a BFRB track, you could. 
But if you are an OCD specialist that doesn't specialize in BFRBs, that's a great opportunity to go, okay, so I'm going to go learn something about it at this session and I, mm-hmm. so that I know where to refer or I have some of that insight and understanding. It's a great, great opportunity to just engage and get a little bit of the psychoed. And I think that's helpful for all the OCD-related disorders when we're, when we're seeing some of that overlap. Like, you don't have to be the specialist in that thing. Like, we need people in all areas. Mm-hmm. But also know when to refer out and right. know who to refer to so that they're not going to a doctor that shames them and says, well, that's weird and you should stop that and here's a script for this medication and so you can knock it off. I mean, that's uh, that's not helping. That's not neuroaffirming for any of us. We don't know what we don't know. So I'm going to guess you didn't always know about BFRBs, but you learned about them. And now you have really helped pave and lead away with so many fantastic colleagues that are doing that great work through TLC and through other organizations around the world. And so I think that's such a great point. Well, Ruth, I know at the beginning I was like, I will try to not take all your time. And then like every last drip of a minute, I'm like, but this has been so helpful. And I am going to link all of these different resources that Ruth and I were talking about, as well as the books that she has published. We are really, really honored, honestly, to have your expertise just shared with us because it's it's so helpful to have those guides, the good information. So if your doctor doesn't know about it, you can pick up, especially for parents, like the hair picking guide, right? So, so helpful. And so thank you so much for the time that you've spent with us today. This has been treasured and so helpful. Oh, my pleasure. It's been truly my pleasure. And I'm so glad you're focusing on this and that people are interested because I think it's it's an area that really deserves a lot of attention and interest. Yeah, well, and we're better together and it's common. So let's just call it call what it is. It's common. Yeah. It's humans, humaning. It's brains, braining. Uh, and, and yeah, we're better together. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Certainly. Thank you for that. Okay, fam. That was so, so helpful. Am I right? And, you know, I got into an interesting conversation with a colleague the other day because we were chatting about this idea of we really don't have to all be specialists in a given area. I'm an OCD specialist, but I wouldn't consider myself a BFRB specialist. But you know what? At this point, do I know a thing or two about BFRBs? Well, yes, I do. Because I've sought out more learning. I've been informing myself. I've been the parent of a BFRB warrior. And I really took some initiative to have some of these conversations like this one. But you don't even have to go as far as me or you could go farther. The point is, conversations like the one I had with Ruth today or the one I had with Dr. Lisa Conway this past summer or Suzanne last year during our OCD-related disorder series, they're so important. And when a client comes in or even a family member like my daughter and they need some help and hope, I'm able to do that. I'm able to join them there. And Ruth's suggestion regarding consultation, you know, it really just reminded me of the conversation we just created with our Montana crew a few weeks ago. Every single practitioner on that panel noted how important consultation and supervision has been 
for their learning and their growth. Because it takes the meatiness of theoretical and manualized treatment and it applies it directly where you need it most. What's going to be helpful for your client? How can we help them grow into their greatest advocates, accept themselves for who they are, and befriend their neurochemistry? I still love that tip, Ruth. It's a true gem, and I am ready to cite you on that because it's such a great point. So for today's intrusive thought segment, which for the new fam joining us is the application segment of my show where I really try to break down what we've learned and apply it to the present, making this information not only helpful food for thought, but useful now, today, this week, fam. And so whether you're the mother, daughter, sister, father, partner, spouse, roommate, or therapist, my charge for you today, fam, is to reach out and initiate a conversation, a consultation, even if it's just with your family member, with your loved one. And the question is, how do you want me to respond if I walk into a room this week and you're engaged in your BFRB? For some, this may mean reaching out and scheduling a consultation with a therapist. Ruth and many other practitioners in the field offer consultations where you can see, is this a great fit? Could it be beneficial for me? Am I seen as more than just my BFRB? Is there hope? Oh, and, you know, not to spoil the ending, but even if your practitioner doesn't offer quote-unquote consultation to gauge appropriateness of fit, you get to be the driver and the leader of your own health care. And that includes mental health care. So if it's not helpful or you're not seen and you're not heard, you don't have to stay in that situation. If it's not a great fit, find one that is. You get a choice and you deserve to work with someone that sees you for you. But just remember, sometimes one session, one bit of information, one practice with a fidget or another tool isn't going to just solve the problem. Delete the urge. Our brain is going to brain y'all. So while you have choice, I always advocate for giving that choice a fair shot too, if you feel ready for treatment. And for clinicians, this may mean picking up a copy of the newly released Comb Bay Treatment for Body-Focused Repetitive Behaviors, thanks to Ruth and her co-authors. And perhaps snatching up a copy of that companion workbook that can work with the treatment manual or even on its own. Maybe it's checking in with your client. How's this going for you? How would you like us to prioritize your BFRB and your treatment? I just met with a new client yesterday, fam, that was like, yeah, I have this, but it's not still on the show right now. And it's a good month. So I'll let you know. But for now, let's focus on this other need. Great. And if and when it is time, if and when it does get loud, if and when they do want help, it's available. And bonus. It's not just hope. It's hope, too. So has an opportunity fallen through the cracks? Maybe. But it's never too late to learn more, to refer more, to support more, to know that we aren't alone. So let's ask some questions this week. What would you like me to do? How can we react? Would you like more help with this? Let's consult. Let's talk. Let's ask the questions. We don't have to know how to map out their SCAMP, which is the acronym you could say for those five different content areas that Ruth was talking about earlier in the show. And you don't even need to know how to map that out. Find somebody that knows it like the back of their hand and let them help you. 
We also learned about scamps during this summer's water cooler chat on BFRBs, where I got to chat with another great helper in this field, Dr. Lisa Conway. And that episode, too, was full of really helpful resources. So I'm going to link that along with the amazing resources we talked about today with Ruth over on the blog. We know that Ruth is working on that workbook. I happen to know that Dr. Marlon Diebler and Dr. Renee Renardi also just published a BFRB recovery workbook. So if you need something today, you're like, I need a workbook today, yesterday. Check out the blog for a link. Google search it. Just know that you're not alone and that there is help available. So reach out, consult, ask the question, or press pause, zoom out, and find your village to support you so that you can better support your warriors. Because this is hard, fam. But you're not alone. And we are better together. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like talking with Ruth about Via Barbie Truths. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.